Hello and welcome to episode five of this podcast series. My name is Kim Lee. I'm a child and adolescent psychotherapist working with children, young people and their families. In this episode, I want to talk about a sensitive but nonetheless highly important feature of family relationships. The term gaslighting is derived from the title of a 1938 British stage play and was released as the film Gaslight in the UK in 1940. This is a psychological thriller starring Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer and Angela Lansbury. Now, The central theme of the story is one where a vulnerable woman is manipulated by her husband in order that he may take control over her and in his efforts he manages to persuade her that she is losing her mind. Now he does this by consistently challenging and redefining her reality, manipulating her emotional state and maintaining a kind of dominance in the power balance of the relationship. In the film, the woman is portrayed as vulnerable, having experienced numerous traumatic events in her life, and the gaslighter, initially presenting as a benevolent rescuer, systematically breaks down her sense of identity. Take note of the word rescuer. This benevolence, charm, apparent altruism and preoccupation inevitably appeal to the emotional and psychologically vulnerable woman. Over time, his demeanour changes. He becomes critical, controlling, overbearing and begins to define the victim's reality for her. She, still holding on to that part of him which is benevolent and rescuing, slowly, almost imperceptibly, submits to his will and his definitions of right, wrong and reality. Now, when his persecutory behaviours become more dramatic and at sometimes melodramatic, he may well move into a different position. He becomes the victim, the victim of his own life experiences, his frustrations at her apparent ineptitude, the failure of his efforts to save her. And in turn, she becomes his rescuer. And so it goes on. A self-maintaining cycle of misery. And the drama triangle, first described by Stephen Karpman in 1961, is used in psychology to describe the insidious way in which we present ourselves as victims, persecutors and rescuers. Although all three of these are roles and none may be true to who we really are, we can all get caught up in a cycle that's really hard to escape. Now the victim sees life as happening to them, they feel powerless to change their circumstances and they tend to place the blame on external things, whether it's a real persecutor or a situation which is persecutory. In any event, they characterise powerlessness and ostensibly they seek rescuers to solve the problems for them. But victims also have a secondary interest in validating their problems so that they become insoluble. These are also the yes-but individuals who are also help-rejecting complainers and are emotionally draining. The rescuer, in turn, seems to want to help the victim, but in fact, what they're really doing is helping themselves because they act in ways that are geared to their own needs 
rather than those of the person concerned. And it's important to qualify here that when we talk about the rescuer in this situation, we're not referring to someone like a firefighter who's dealing with a real emergency in an honest way. The definition of rescuer in the drama triangle is someone who seems to be striving to solve a victim's problems, but in fact does so in ways that result in the victim having less power, with the rescuer benefiting more than the victim. So, rather than empowering, they disempower. Now, persecutors have an uncanny way of justifying and rationalising their behaviours. They will explain that they have good, benevolent and logical reasons for doing what they do and have done. And this apparent display of objectivity is nothing more than a denial-based rationalisation. They may, of course, revert to the victim role, saying things like, I did it because he or she didn't or wouldn't or refused or ignored, etc. And sometimes they'll go to extremes, saying things like, Life is not worth living, you'd all be better off without me, etc. Now this rather egocentric, it wasn't me, it was them, no one understands me, externalising of responsibility, demonstrates a significant lack of empathy, personal responsibility and awareness of others, and such is narcissism. In any event, those real victims who on the receiving end of this type of behaviour are locked into a kind of heads-I-win, tails-you-lose scenario. You may also find yourself in conflict with someone the gaslighter has incorporated into their argument, or they may say things like, your family think you're wrong, as well as me, or they may misquote others with things like, I'm not the only one with concerns, even the doctor says you need help, when in fact... The doctor is simply benevolently inquired after the person concerned. They are adept at setting up and striving off conflict between others whilst they watch. In abusive relationships, and those particularly where substance abuse and addiction are present, the abuser is someone who will have episodes of considerable acting out and destructive behaviours. I should say at this point that I... I'm using the term gaslighter, persecutor and abuser interchangeably. Uh, but essentially, I'm sure you're getting the picture. The real victims of these situations are often late in a uh, left in a state of fear, emotional chaos, real and perceived lack of safety. And they will be the ones who have to pick up the pieces comforting the distressed children and concealing the untenable reality from other family members and maybe grandparents, etc. And quite often, uh, such episodes are followed by great acts of attrition, the abusers breaking down and the victim doing everything within her power to rescue the situation. This is often underpinned by the hope that maybe this time she will be successful. But it's not long before the abuser minimises the event, saying that it wasn't that bad and everyone was overreacting, before returning to their manipulative ways. Now it's incredibly hard for people locked into such relationships to see what is happening to them. And this is due to the fact that the behaviours and relational patterns become normalised. Now by normalised I don't mean normal, I mean that they have become the norm within the relational culture. 
Now, having worked with many women, this is not to exclude men in such situations. I have seen these patterns more times than I can remember. And it's sad to see that these women do not realize just how bad their situations are because they are immersed in them. And I'm sure some of you will have heard people say, I didn't realize how bad the situation was until I looked back on it once I'd left. Now, it's at times like these that when I encounter women who really don't have a sense of how bad things are, I might say to them, if your sister or your best friend or your daughter was experiencing and expressing the things that you tell me in their lives, how would you see that? Now, I've yet to hear the answer. I would tell them to stay in the relationship and try harder because it's their fault and they have to fix it. Now, that's not a particularly scientific approach, but of course, it's an attempt to try and enable the victim to look at the situation from a different perspective. And most often they do. That doesn't dramatically change things. But what it does is to introduce a glimmer of light and hope. In my experience, gaslighters do not limit their behaviours to personal relationships. You know, very often, they will, be, they will present as amenable, kind, caring human beings, and they'll be everybody's friend and nothing is too much for them. However, in the privacy of their own homes and in certain situations, when placed under stress or pressure or questioned about their motives, they'll become defensive hostile and voice their anger at being unfairly treated, misunderstood and that they are being persecuted. Now the objective reality of course is that that's not necessarily what's happening but what we often see is that in an effort to endeavour to reason with this individual we are wrong-footed. We try and help, we try and explain but the help is dramatically and emphatically rejected we might then become critical ourselves and indeed adversarial. But then we've fallen into the trap and we are cast as persecutor. Such people exist within the workplace and in social groups. They take up space, they tend to dominate conversation and complain when challenged. Often they're very articulate and seemingly convincing. They're the personification, however, of the false self. They rely upon reframing redefining and correcting others. They have little room for the, part, uh, for the perspective of others and if it doesn't conform to their own nice narcissistic drive, they are inclined to tell the other person they're wrong. Now, sometimes I hear real victims say, well, in his childhood, he had a terrible time. And I tend to reply with, yes, there is always an explanation, but that's not an excuse and neither are you responsible for its accommodation or resolution. In simple language, that means, yes, horrible things probably did happen when he was a small person, now he's a grown-up. Now, that isn't to undermine what may have happened, but we do have to consider that we have to take responsibility for ourselves, and if we fail to do that, then we are simply acting out the abusive behavior regardless of its cause. 
For those in a personal relationship of this kind, and I've heard this more times than I can remember, the carefulness required to survive within the relationship is characterized by comments like, I have to be very careful about what I say. I have to be careful about when I say it. I have to be careful about what I do, where I go, and who I talk to, because he might not like it. I don't know who I am anymore. I know he or she is struggling, but nothing I do seems to help. I'm constantly acting as a balancer in the family, trying to keep the peace and avoid conflict. I feel like I have to work, walk on eggshells. I'm not me anymore. I don't know who me was or is. Often when I acknowledge that what I'm hearing sounds like abuse, I will often hear the response, yes, but he would say, which confirms my view. In my experience, most of the people who say this are women. That is not to say that men too don't experience the same thing. In my work, many of these women are mothers, and it concerns me greatly that their children are living in an environment where abusive behavior in a relationship has become normalized. And then this is internalized by children. And such children have a very confused and conflicted internal view of their caregivers, but also the way in which the caregivers relate to each other, and indeed how that influences the child's own sense of personality and identity. This has lasting damage, and sadly, such children may go on to develop difficulties which find expression through anxiety, volatile behaviour, withdrawal, depression, alcohol misuse, self-harm. In my caseload, I will almost always have at least one of these children in my clinical care. In such cases, fear keeps victims locked into the toxic relationship. They fear losing their homes, their financial security, and indeed the illusion of family. Unlike so many difficulties we face in our lives, the first step towards change and recovery is the recognition that there is something wrong. So ask yourself, do I have to live this way? Is this how other people live? Is this healthy? And maybe even, do I deserve better than this? The next step is to seek help. Join a group, contact a counsellor or therapist, and... There are many solicitors who are sympathetic and who will offer a free first consultation. Police forces throughout the country have systems in place to immediately respond to your concerns. Your GP, social care and mental health services all have and must exercise a duty of care which you can access. The path to becoming a survivor rather than a victim does take time because there is probably a good deal of repair work to do. That said, here's a very simple principle. Persecutors do not like to be challenged. Neither do they like to be ignored. When we say what we see to them, it destabilizes their position of power. When we say things like, that's abusive, I won't tolerate being abused, without any further explanation, clarification, or justification, or engagement with what is said next, 
you begin to restore the power balance. You are beginning to extinguish the gaslighter. Yes, there will be noise, but that's all it is. There will be threats, but that's all they are, and the law is on your side and on the side of the children. The significance of this is that in confronting the behavior, firmly but calmly, you are no longer feeding the abuser because you are describing and naming the behavior that you see. It's not a debate, it's an observation and it's a statement, not a point of discussion. You don't need to justify or engage in any deliberation about what you see. Persecutors really don't like that very much. So when they criticize the observations, when they make retaliatory comments, you simply say, and that's abusive too. In my experience of working with couples where one is behaving in a persecutory manner, I will confront them with the reality of their behavior and make very clear that it won't be tolerated. This is not done angrily or threateningly. It is, however, very clear and very firm. Remember, there is a very good deal of help available and you can access this quite quickly and easily. Do speak to friends and family. Don't be alone with this. And do think about your children's mental health alongside your own. And above all else, this is not your fault. In the next episode, we will be looking at the effects of these experiences and the effects of other family difficulties upon children. We're going to be looking at managing dysregulated emotional states in children. And I look forward to you coming back to listen to that one. So thank you for listening and take good care.